As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you are the light of the minds that know you and the life of the souls that love you and the strength of the wills that serve you. So help us so to know you that we may truly love you and so to love you that we may fully serve you. For we know that to serve you is perfect freedom. So speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in God's word to the gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Mark, chapter 9. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this morning. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to chapter 9, verse 38. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 1075 of many of our Pew Bibles. Uh, Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. So Mark chapter 9, beginning our reading at verse 38 and reading through verse 41. And let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, in this passage, we find Jesus and his disciples still in that house in Capernaum getting this private instruction from Jesus. We saw them enter that house in verse 33 and have a discussion about who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. And this conversation continues, and this is part of that continuing conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Uh, They're talking still about what it means to be disciples. That's what Jesus is teaching them. Um, And John, on behalf of the disciples, puts a situation that they encountered before Jesus, where they had met this stranger who was not following them, who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. Uh, We're not told why this discussion of who's the greatest has brought this up in John's mind, Uh, why John chooses to raise this at this point. We don't know if he raised it hoping that Jesus would affirm what they had done and say, yeah, you guys did the right thing, Um, or whether he, some commentators speculate whether John had come under conviction about what Jesus had said about receiving such one as a child in the previous verses, and that it brought to John's mind the situation where they had not received but rather forbade this person. But we don't really know. We don't know why this situation was brought up by John on behalf of the disciples, Uh, but we do know that it's an opportunity for Jesus to teach his disciples and to teach us more about our role as disciples in the kingdom of God. These are important things for the disciples to understand, important things for anyone who calls themselves a disciple of Christ uh, to know and to understand about what it means to to appreciate the kingdom of God and to uh, glorify God when that kingdom is expanded. And so we can see our Lord using this report to teach his disciples, uh, first through their failed forbidding, um, through their failure, Jesus is going to teach them something. That's the first thing we want to look at, their failed forbidding. The second thing we want to look at is his furthered mission, uh, how we should think about the mission of the kingdom and see it furthered in this, and his favored service, 
the way the Lord looks on service done uh, to his people, so his favored service. So that's how we want to look at this text. There failed forbidding his furthered mission and his favored service. Uh, John brings up a situation that recounts another failure by the disciples. Uh, the, word that John u- the words that John uses in verse 38 make it clear that they had encountered this man who was casting out demons, and they had tried to stop him. Uh, that's really the force of what John's saying here. We tried to stop him. We tried to forbid him from doing this. And the fact that he puts it that way indicates they were not successful in stopping him. Uh, that they had come to this person and said, you know, you really need to stop casting out demons. And he had continued to cast out demons in Jesus' name. And so John is talking about this situation where they, they failed. This is another failure by the disciples. Uh, just earlier in chapter 9, they had failed to drive out demons themselves um, and through lack of their faith. And now they have a situation where they failed again. They tried to forbid somebody from casting out demons, and they seem to have failed to do it. He kept casting out demons in Jesus' name. Um, and this, re- this refusal is sort of the subject of what John brings to Jesus. And particularly, John says why they tried to stop him. It would be the natural question to ask, if someone is successfully driving out demons, what would possess someone to try to stop the person from doing that? Right? That, that is kind of an obvious question, isn't it? If, if someone is successfully driving out demons, why would anyone come along and say, um, you, you ought to stop doing that? And John says, well, because he was casting them out in your name, and he doesn't follow us. Uh, We forbade him, John said, because he was not following us. In other words, because this person was not one of the 12, not following Jesus the way the other 12 disciples were following him, that this person should have been forbidden. Uh, they, They must have been looking at this from the perspective of authority. They must have thought, we have been given authority as those who follow Jesus to proclaim the kingdom and to drive out demons in his name, Uh, but this person has received no such authority. Um, He doesn't follow us. Um, It's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? Um, He doesn't follow us. Jesus had not said, if anyone would come after us, he must pick up his cross, deny himself, and follow us. Jesus had said, follow me. Um, And I think that the way that John puts it kind of exposes where the real problem lies and what the disciples were thinking. It shows that they still have to have a lot to learn about discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus. Um, And it sort of exposes their faulty reasoning because they assume that their authority that they've been given is the only authority that the Lord has, has given, and they seem to fail to understand that the Lord is working through this man. Um, one of the things that they should have learned in all of the times they've been with Jesus and everything they've seen him done is the connection between his power being revealed and faith in him. Um, faith and power have always gone together. Um, Jesus has made that very clear. Recently in chapter 9, he's made it clear when he said, why couldn't you drive out the demon? Because you lack faith. When it was reported to him that they attempted to drive out this demon and failed to do so, he lamented this faithless generation. Um, And if the lack of power was connected to the lack of faith, certainly when power has been shown, it's been connected to faith. Uh, The woman who was healed... 
Uh, Jesus told her to go away. Your faith has made you well. Right? Power and faith have been connected over and over again. And so when Jesus, when Jesus' disciples see this example of power being done in Jesus' name, what should they have concluded? There must also be faith in the name. That God has to be working through this person. That even though he's not following us, he's blessed by the Lord in what he's doing. He's using Jesus' name. He's using it in a way that believes in Jesus' name. And there's power being revealed through how he uses Jesus' name. And for them not to see both the faith and the exercise of power being expressions of the will of Christ, and then assuming that they had the authority to try to stop this from going on, is to really misunderstand the Lord and to misunderstand the work of his kingdom. This man was clearly acting in faith in Christ's name, and with Christ's blessing, because he was successful in doing what he was doing. And they made a serious mistake by presuming to have the authority to stop this work that was clearly authorized by Christ for the simple reason that this man was not one of their number and was not following them. I think it exposes their faulty reasoning as disciples And if we're honest, it exposes kind of a family defect that Christian disciples have in every generation, a family defect that's common to the church in every generation, which is this, to assume that if people don't follow us, they don't follow Christ. Um, That's a danger, I think, that our Christian family has in every generation, to assume that because someone doesn't follow us, They don't follow Christ, and that somehow they really can only follow Jesus if they're following us. Um, And there's a number of places we could point the finger in church history for this kind of thinking, uh, but we want to make sure that we preach it specifically to ourselves, um, because Reformed people can be particularly guilty of this, or we can see the family defect in ourselves maybe too often of thinking if someone doesn't follow us, they don't follow Christ. Um, And that's defective thinking, um, because it will ignore, then, the good that's being done in Christ's name outside of our own circles and assume just because people aren't following us, they're not following Christ. And Jesus, of course, shows us a better way here of recognizing that there are times when things are not of us, But they still are of the truth, and they are of the Lord, and the response of God's people when they see that should not be to say, well, you know, but they don't follow us, so it's really not good. Um, No, what, what should we do when we see that? We should rejoice wherever something is done in the truth and in the Lord, even if it's not of us. That should be the attitude that we have. We have to be aware of this kind of family defect. This way of thinking that says, because you aren't following us, you must not be following Christ. Um, Jesus is teaching us something important, that there can be things that may not be of us, but are still of the truth, and therefore of the Lord. Um, And we see this this idea being uh, promoted for us and helping us to see how we should properly respond to situations like this in two particular places in the scripture that can be helpful to us. The first is a situation that came up with, with Moses and Joshua in Numbers chapter 11. 
Uh, maybe you remember that. All of you are saying, of course, Numbers 11, sure, we, we all know that. Um, but let me remind you in case you don't. Um, what, what happened in Numbers 11? Well, there were the 70 elders were gathered around Moses, and the Lord took some of the spirit that was upon Moses, and he put it upon these 70 elders, and they all began to prophesy in the name of the Lord. Um, they didn't continue to prophesy, but there was this outpouring of the spirit, and they all began to prophesy, all of these 70 elders who were out with Moses. But then a report came that the Spirit of the Lord had also come upon two men in the camp who were not part of Moses and the 70, who were not with them in that area. And these two men in the camp began to prophesy. And Joshua hears that these two men are prophesying in the camp. And he comes to Moses and said, hey, there's something going on by people who are not of us. These people here who are supposed to be prophesying. There are two people in the camp who are prophesying. And my Lord Moses, you need to stop them. Do you remember that situation? And do you remember what Moses said to Joshua? In Numbers eleven twenty nine, 29, he said, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. His attitude is really, are you complaining that there are two guys outside of our circle who are prophesying? I would that everybody was prophesying. I would that everybody was filled with the Spirit and speaking in the Lord's name. I don't seek it to be restrained. I want to see it promoted. I would love to see it go beyond this bound. This is the proper way of thinking about things that may not be of us, but are of the truth and of the Lord. Moses would have felt very different about those two men, were they not really in the Spirit and not really prophesying in the name of the Lord. If it had not been of the truth, he would have been against it. But why does he rejoice in it? He's saying it might not be of us, but it's of the truth, and it's of the Lord. That's to be celebrated. Another proper response to this kind of thing we see in Paul in Philippians chapter 1, where he's telling the Philippians about how the mission of the church is going in Rome and how excited he is that that Christ is being proclaimed. And he said it's not a perfect situation, there are those, he tells us in Philippians 1.15, who are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry and who out of a selfish ambition are seeking to afflict Paul in his imprisonment by what they preach. Um, so it's not perfectly motivated, but Christ is being proclaimed in truth. And so what is Paul's attitude towards this true proclamation of Christ, even though the motive behind it is to hurt him? What does he say? Philippians 1.18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Christ is preached. What more could I want, Paul says? It's not that the, the motives behind it are good. And certainly if they had not been preaching the truth, Paul would have been against it. But why does he celebrate it? The motives are bad. But the truth is being communicated. And Paul's saying, what is it then if they're trying to hurt me and what they're doing, if what they're really doing is making Christ's name known? If the truth is getting out and the Lord's name is being made known, what, do, what is that to me, what they're trying to do to me? I'm rejoicing in that, even from those who are utterly opposed to him personally. And both from Moses and from Paul, we can learn the proper attitude we are to have to the mission of the church and the kingdom of Christ in the world. We should rejoice wherever 
the kingdom of Christ is being advanced in truth. And never assume that just because it's not of us, it's not of the truth and of Christ. Wherever God's truth is maintained and advanced, we should rejoice. Um, Where the cause of Christ is being advanced in truth, it should be a cause of rejoicing for us, even if we are not the ones doing it. That helps us to have a much more generous spirit towards other brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than a narrow sectarian spirit that says, if we're not doing it, it's not really being done. Wherever Christ's truth is being maintained, advanced in the world, that should be a cause of rejoicing for us, even if they're not following us, because they're following Christ. And so may the Lord help us by his spirit to rejoice wherever the cause of Christ's kingdom is being advanced in the truth to the glory of his name. And I think that's what Jesus is also helping his disciples to understand, um, that his mission is actually being furthered by what's happening here. But they need to see that in what this man is doing. And so Jesus moves from their failed forbidding to his furthered mission. The the disciples really need to see this as the growth of the kingdom and as something to be rejoiced in rather than hindered by them. Um, And I think Jesus is helping them to understand how the kingdom mission that they're all involved in is actually being advanced and furthered through the work of this stranger. Uh, Particularly in the work of driving out demons, we see the glory of the kingdom being proclaimed. Um, Because we've already, again, in the Gospel of Mark, this is one of the advantages of going through a book, is we've already seen Jesus talk about what this, this particular kind of miracle proclaims about the kingdom of God. This work of driving out demons says something particular about the kingdom of God that has come and the glory of that kingdom. You think back to Mark chapter 3, that's where Jesus was attacked by the religious authorities who said, you're driving out Satan in Satan's name. It's really by Satan that you're driving out demons. And Jesus showed how foolish that was as a statement, Um, an idea that makes no sense at all, um, that Satan would be driving out Satan. But Jesus says, you know, he used a picture to tell them this is really what's happening. It's a very vivid picture that he gave in Mark chapter 3:27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And that's that's what Jesus is saying. That's what's happening in the exorcism of these demons. That's what's happening is actually the strength of Satan's kingdom has been bound. That there's, this is demonstration of the power of a rival kingdom that's come to make war on Satan's kingdom and that is too strong for him. He has been bound by the Son of God in his coming. His kingdom is being torn apart by the Son of God. His captives are being set free. That's the glory of the kingdom that's coming. And every exorcism really proclaims the, the glory of that kingdom, the triumph of the kingdom of God over Satan's kingdom of darkness. That the adversary has met someone who is beyond his ability to combat. And every time an exorcism is shown, it's another proclamation of the power and the glory of the kingdom that's come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what's happening when this man is, ex- is exercising these demons. 
It's another proclamation of the power of the kingdom of God. It's another recognition that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is too much for the kingdom of darkness to endure. That it cannot win that war. That it's being combated and destroyed by the kingdom of God and the king who has come. It's the glorious good news of the triumph of Christ's kingdom and the power of that kingdom. As we we thought about one commentator saying back in chapter 3, Jesus' control over demonic power speaks of the collapse of the kingdom of Satan in the face of the coming kingdom of God. And that's why Jesus says to his disciples, don't forbid someone who's doing this. Because it's magnifying the truth of that cosmic victory that's being won by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's this wonderful big picture glorification of the kingdom of God showing that it is triumphant over the kingdom of darkness. Um, It's saying something about the cosmic war that's being waged and being waged successfully by the Son of God over the devil. And Jesus is saying to them, there's that big picture furthering of the mission that you should keep in your mind as a reason not to forbid what's being done here. But Jesus also is not just saying, this is a big picture glorification of my name, but think about the impact this is having in the individual lives of those involved. Right? It's one thing to talk about the big picture indication of what's happening through this, the, the cosmic warfare, the kingdom triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ, big picture. But what's happening in the lives of these poor individuals they're being set free from a horrible sort of tyranny. Right? We are just fresh off of what chapter 9 had said about what one demon did to a boy from his childhood, striking him mute, causing him to go into these fits, trying to throw himself into fire and water to destroy him. We can talk about the big picture glory of the Lord, but the Lord is also concerned with all of these individuals and saying, why would you forbid these people from being set free? From being set free from the captivity that they are under. There's a cosmic level glory to the kingdom, but individually, there are all these lives that have been cruelly hijacked by demons who are being restored by the work of this man. And isn't that a wonderful blessing that's given to people by the power of Jesus and in his name? Why would anyone want to see that stopped for their sakes? Jesus is saying, you have to understand how this is advancing the glory of my name in in cosmic ways, but also how this is advancing the glory of my name in these individual lives that are being set free. And Jesus also actually says, this is having an advantage for the man who's doing these things as well. It's not just the people who are being set free who are blessed through what this man is doing. The man himself is finding a blessing in doing these works in Jesus' name. What does Jesus say in verse 39? Do not stop him, for one who does a mighty work in my name, no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterward, able soon afterward to speak evil of me. I butchered that in the reading, but you get the point. What is Jesus saying? It's not just a blessing to these poor souls who are being set free. It's a blessing for this man. He may not be following us, so he might not know the full scope of what it means that Christ is the Messiah and has come in the world, but he knows something of the power of the name. 
and he believes in the power of the name. And when these mighty acts are being done in the name of Christ, what is that doing for this man who already believes? It is strengthening his faith. This is also coming on the heels of someone who had said, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And Jesus is saying, you know, no one who is doing things like this will be able soon after to speak evil of me. What does God remind us in his word that our good works actually help to assure us of our faith by its fruits? Help build us up in the faith. And if that's true of the good works that every Christian does, it's certainly true of the mighty works this man is doing in Christ's name. Christ is saying, why would you stop this man seeing that it's good for the people, it's good for the kingdom, it's good for the people, it's good for him? Because it will strengthen his faith. He will not be able quickly after to speak a bad word about me because he's driving out these demons in my name. Jesus is saying to them, don't forbid what he's doing. It's good for these demon-possessed people. It's good for the man doing it. And Jesus is also reminding them that it's good for them as his disciples who seek to see the kingdom of God furthered in the world. Jesus is saying, don't stop him. It's good for the kingdom writ large. It's good for individuals. It's good for the man doing it. And Jesus says, it's good for you who seek to serve in my name. And do the things I've called you to do. And how does Jesus show them that it's good for them? By what he says in verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. Um, You're forbidding someone who's not against us. You're trying to stop someone who's actually not against us. And Jesus is actually saying, you need to see this as a help to you. Um, A help that you haven't been looking for, but has come to help advance the cause of the kingdom. Right? For us and against us, Jesus is reminding them, there are many opponents to my kingdom in this world. There are many who are against the kingdom of God. We've seen them all over the pages of the book of Mark. There are spiritual opponents who are opposed to the kingdom of God, who are against it, Satan and his demons. There are religious opponents who are against the kingdom of God, scribes, Pharisees, the other religious leaders. There are political opponents that are against the kingdom of God, Um, Herod, his Herodians, other people who are politically motivated to see the message of the kingdom stopped. Jesus is saying to his disciples, there are plenty of people who are against us. But don't be so quick to put someone in the against us category especially when they're not really working against us. Because those who are not actively opposing us are actually helping us to do the work that we are doing. They're not against us. They actually are serving us. And here, too, Jesus is teaching them this truth in a way that is inclusive and welcoming, as one commentator said. It's, it's opening the door to think favorably about others. Now, there are other gospel writers that will say other things that will clarify these statements in different directions, but Mark wants this statement here to be left, this statement that's much more inclusive, to not be so quick to see someone as against us. Um, I'm always amazed how much I see. I try to avoid reading too much online of these warfares of, you know, armchair theologians back and forth, like always criticizing each other, but um, I'm always surprised how often the word heretic gets thrown around. 
Um, and I always throw something like easy. <laughs> it's not everyone's a heretic just because they don't agree with you on every single point of doctrine. There are people that say heretical things, but not everyone needs to be a heretic all the time. Um, and that's sort of the nature of that kind of online conversation, I think. You know, just trying to find fault and always saying, all right, now who's really for us? Who's really against us? And Jesus teaches a totally different way of looking at these things. And says to his disciples, you know what, you know what these guys, what this man is doing who you don't know, who doesn't follow us? He's advancing the kingdom of God. He's actually helping you in doing what he's doing. It's another ally who's actually promoting the kingdom of God. And rather than see him as against us and trying to forbid him, recognize that he's not against us and so he's for us. Calvin says helpfully, even between those who are kind of between enemies and friends, so far as they do no harm, they are useful and profitable. Well, there's enough people who are against us in this world without us trying to find enemies behind every bush where none exist. We're actually not hurting up what we're trying to do and actually advancing the kingdom of Christ. And rather than put them obviously in this enemy category, maybe see them as people who just need some help. I like a Scottish pastor who said, for those who are between enemies and friends, here we have a call for patient forbearance and guidance for those who have not yet reached the full perception of the truth. And God is saying to his disciples, don't, don't be so against the help that's come to you unlooked for, unexpected help in the furtherance of the kingdom mission, rather than see those who are not against you as being for you, enabling you to do what you've been called to do. Um, And it's an encouragement that Jesus gives us when we look around the world and see so many people who are against us to remind us, you know, there are people who are not against us, who are not actively opposing us. And we should be thankful for those people as a gift of God because they allow us to do what God has called us to do in the world. And we can praise God that there are not only in the world people who are against us, but many who are for us And so Jesus continues that note of encouragement where he ends with talking about his favored service. Uh, The encouraging words of verse 40, Jesus continues into verse 41 to encourage them about services rendered in his kingdom. He's already spoken about mighty works that have been done for his kingdom. That's how he described the mighty work the man is doing in his name in verse 39. But verse 41 is wonderful because Jesus says, even the meager work that's done in my service is honored in my kingdom. Um, It's not just great works that are honored by Christ. It's even these meager works. And the meager example of work and service that he gives is extending a a cup of water. If someone gives you a, a cup of water to drink, Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. A cup of water to drink is a basic requirement of hospitality in their culture. Um, In part, it comes from just a sense of, you know, living in a dry, arid climate. There are people who need a cup of water to drink. And that was considered like the lowest level of hospitality you could do. Um, Almost everybody was obligated to give anyone who asked a cup of water to drink. Um, and sort of like it would be for us today. It's not a big ask, right? Um, if someone is at your house and say, can I have a glass of water to drink? You don't think, well, I don't, I mean, we think about that. That's a big ask. I mean, nobody does that, right? It's, of course, we, we have water, you may have one. It's not a big act of service. It wasn't a big act of service then. 
Um, It's just the basic level of hospitality. I think that's why Jesus uses this example. It's the most simple and basic thing. Anyone would feel obligated to give that to someone, and someone who received it would not see it as a big act of service. Um, But Jesus puts this small act and imputes it with so much significance because of the reward that will surely come. Right? That's the beauty of what he says in verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Right? Just as if no no one at our house who asked for a cup of water, you would never say to them, what are you going to give me as a reward? Right? That would make no sense. I mean, it would make us kind of a jerk to say it, but it would make no sense. You don't reward something like that. Rewards, you think of something big. Now, maybe the guy who's driving out demons deserves a reward, but someone who gives a cup of water, do they really deserve a reward? How do we reconcile this small act with this sure reward? Where does the significance come from? It comes from the fact that it's being done because you belong to Christ. That's the, that's the reason that this work is so highly regarded in, in Christ. It's because you belong to Christ. That's why they're doing it. That's exactly what it means here, because you belong to Christ. But if we wanted to translate the Greek a little more woodenly, it would be because in the name of Christ you are. And here it brings out the name again. Right? He was driving out demons in Jesus' name. There was the power of the name being recognized for its mightiness. But then Jesus comes and says, but even if in the name of Christ is just, in related, just related to a meager act of service, not a mighty act of driving out demons in my name, but if someone just gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to me. They're acts of faith and, and obedience that are rendered in service to the king because they say something about what the person serving the other person thinks of the Lord. Right? They're doing it not because of who you are, they're doing it because of who he is and because you belong to him. That's the reason that this small, insignificant act in and of itself becomes something that's worthy of a sure and great reward because it says something about what you think of the king. And it's a reminder that if you do any kind of service, whether it's meager or mighty for someone because they are Christ's, because they belong to him, it is not a trivial or unimportant thing in his sight. And that's important, I think, for us to to really reflect on as Christians because most of us don't do mighty acts of service. Some of us do. There are some people that do wonderful acts of service for their neighbor, but many of us are not capable of mighty acts, certainly not driving out demons or doing something you know, that, that's waging that kind of war on a cosmic level. And we might look at the small services we offer and say, well, is that really significant in the Lord's sight? And the Lord here is saying, take the least activity of service you can think of. That is a big deal to me because it says something about what you think of my name when you perform this service. He's teaching them something very important about service in his kingdom because that service says something about how the person serving thinks of the name of the Lord. 
And Jesus magnifies that here by using the name Christ. He doesn't say, because you belong to me. He doesn't say, because you belong to the Son of Man. He says, because you belong to Christ. That's not a name, a title he has self-applied to himself anywhere in the gospel. Right? We were told at the beginning of Mark that he, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Peter said in chapter 8, you are the Christ. But Jesus has been avoiding that term because he knows it carries with it all this baggage in their culture. But here he uses it. He doesn't say because you belong to Jesus or because you belong to the Son of Man. He says because you belong to Christ. You belong to the Messiah, the one who has been anointed by his Father with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, our only high priest, and our eternal king. That's the one to whom you belong. And when service is done to you because you belong to him, it shows what people think of his name. But the other reason Jesus rewards even this meager service is because of how he loves those who belong to him. One of the reasons you get a, that he promises a sure reward to people who do service because they belong to the name is because it says something about how the person serving thinks of the king. But also the Lord says you have to remember how the king thinks about those you're serving. How the king thinks about those who belong to him. And why does he promise this sure reward? Because he says you're showing a kindness to those who are beloved by me. Um, the reward is not just great because of the service being offered and what that says about the king. It's the service being offered to the one the king thinks so highly of. That are so loved by him. That he loves to see the kindness extended to those who are precious to him. It's a reminder to all of us who call on the name of Christ just how much the Lord thinks of us. Just how much he loves us. We probably don't reflect as much on how much he loves us. One of the things that Jesus came into the world to do for us is to reveal the heart of his father for us. Jesus comes in the world and says, you know, my father has loved you so much that he will not let you perish. He loves you so much that he sent me to save you. That's how much he loves you. And Jesus, as an incarnation and manifestation of that love, shows us how much he loves us because he was willing to pour out his life, body and soul, on the cross to save us from our sins. That's a measure of his love for us. And that's why he promises this reward in the kingdom, not just because of what it says about the heart of the server towards the king, but because of the great love the king has for those being served. We know that, that feeling, don't we, of, of people we love and then we see someone do them a kindness and how our heart goes out to the person who did them a kindness because we love the person that they were kind to and it fills our heart with joy to see that kindness extended to someone. And Jesus is saying, that's the heart of the king of the kingdom for you. That even if someone does you a small kindness, it's worthy of a great reward in my sight because you are precious in my sight. What a wonderful thing it is to learn about the kingdom of God 
and to think about the favored service that he gives towards his people. How it speaks about how people love the king and how it speaks about how much the king loves us. What a privilege to serve in that kingdom and to be part of that kingdom. May we have a spirit that would never seek to you know, try to restrict that kingdom, but to proclaim it in the world and to show it forth in our love for one another. May God build us up in that by his spirit. Amen.